Today, we're talking chest pain. Any ward call should start with a broad differential that is then whittled down to a final impression. For chest pain, life-threatening problems should be considered first. The life-threatening differential includes myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolus, dissection, cardiac tamponade, pneumonia, pneumothorax, and esophageal bleed. Then consider the less urgent causes anatomically. From the heart, pericarditis. From the lungs, mechanical problems like foreign bodies, surgical and chest drains, and post-pleurocentesis pain. The esophagus, reflux, esophagitis, and esophageal spasm. Then musculoskeletal causes of the chest wall, costochondritis, and rib fractures. Below the chest, the pain could be referred from the upper abdomen, and above the chest, so anxiety. With me today is Adele Pope, an advanced cardiology trainee and top clinical educator. Welcome to the show. Thanks. What's your background? Well, actually, um, I did a biomedical degree and went on to do a PhD in cardiac physiology. And then I decided that I wanted to get more into the clinical field. And after doing a fellowship in the States for my science research, came back and did medicine. And now I'm doing my cardiology training. Perfect. And you're just about at the end. I'm just about uh, at the end of looking at my fellowships. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> so I think this is a difficult topic, chest pain. Uh, it, it's a very common one and it ranges from the benign and unexplainable through to the life-threatening. So can you just take us through what your general approach is to a ward call for chest pain? Sure. Uh, ward calls of chest pain are really difficult because they happen all the time. And there are lots of explanations for why patients have chest pain. So I guess what I like to do in loose terms is use the ISBAR format. I know that people use that for handing over on the phones, but actually it's a good approach for dealing with patients on the wards. So go to the ward, identify my, um, the patient and also introduce myself, explain that I've been asked to check out the patient. And then I look at what the situation is. Why am I seeing the patient? Is it because they've been having chest pain for ages and no one sorted it out? Or have the patient suddenly got chest pain and the nurse is worried? And then uh, look at the background of the patient. Um, have they got known cardiovascular risk factors? Or have they got known risk factors for PEs or um, other risk explanations for chest pain? And also look at why they've come to hospital. And that might give you some insight as to whether or not this is a new problem or uh, an ongoing problem. Then I like to assess the patient, and just like any other patient, you want to do your ABCs, and then you want to formulate what you think is going on, what's most likely, and then you want to decide what investigations you want to do to work out whether or not you're right or if something else is a better um, explanation for what's going on, and then uh, come up with a follow-up plan. And at the end of it all, it's actually really important to, if you're uncomfortable, seek some advice from a more senior colleague, or if you're not concerned, um, you want to give the nurse some reassurance and some boundaries for when you sh- they should be worried about the patient and when they should call you back again to reassess the patient. What are some of the red flags you'd be looking for in your history? In my history, I think the biggest thing is whether or not it's a change. Because if a patient's coming complaining of pain, which the team thinks is musculoskeletal, they've been going on, the pain's been ongoing for several hours or if not several days, 
and the patient's remained stable on the ward, the chances that it's a serious cardiac chest pain is pretty low. Um, but if this is a new symptom um, and severe, then you do have to make take it a little bit more seriously. And then it's an end of a beardogram. I mean, does the patient look sick? Do they have increased work of breathing? Do they look distressed? And sometimes that distress is more because of their anxiety, but at first glance you have to take it seriously. But don't ignore those patients which have a lower level of consciousness because that can also be a sign that they're in trouble. What about when you get to the patient and the symptoms have resolved, or at least the pain's resolved? Well, I think it's really important to still take a good history. If the patient had severe enough pain to complain to the nurse, and the nurse came to see you, you have to have an element of consideration for there could be something serious and maybe it's not progressed to anything that's more serious. Um, and also you want to not miss something that could have turn into something bad later on. So a good history and examination to make sure that the patient is clinically stable. Just in terms of your history, you'd put, obviously you'd take a pain history, mm. um, often using something like Socrates to just flesh out all the different characteristics, yes. um, onset the radiation, associated symptoms, that kind of thing. What things would be particularly concerning to you? Something that's classic things like mm. shortness of breath, diaphoresis, radiation to the jaw, down the arm, that kind of thing. Yeah. Which ones of those do you think are particularly concerning or a bit more convincing? Uh, well, that's the problem. Um, with cardiac chest pain, I mean, obviously we know that there are the classic symptoms of chest heaviness, radiation, associated diaphoresis, and breath- breathlessness. But uh, that only accounts for a, a small proportion of the patients. And we know that in females, over 30, 50% of females don't actually have pain at all. They have diaphoresis or palpitations or even jaw pain rather than chest pain. And um, then you've got your classic diabetics that don't have any chest pain at all. So um, I think rather than the type of symptom, I like to think about the duration of the symptoms. Because if it's a few seconds of symptoms, it's probably not cardiac. If the symptoms are going on for, say, more than 10, 20 minutes, then that's really putting you in the ballpark of there's something um, cardiac going on. But if this is pain that's been going on for hours, um, and there's been the team or the person that admitted the patient hasn't had any positive results, then this is really unlikely to be cardiac chest pain, for example. So it would typically last you know, at least 10, 20 minutes, mm. and probably the patient would, be, would begin to deteriorate, you're saying? If, it's a, if we're talking specifically about a heart attack, yeah, um, then you, know, we, you get symptoms from ischemia after sort of 10 to 20 minutes. Um, but if you had an ongoing heart attack, the myocardium is going to be dead within, down the track, say, for six hours. So you're expecting there to be a finite period of time where people actually have symptoms from the actual heart attack. They could have ongoing symptoms related to the complications of having the heart attack. So you're going to identify your risk factors uh, from history and from the notes. Mm. Uh, you're going to go through that kind of pain history, seeing about change, any kind of features that make it a bit more concerning, but not use necessarily use them to rule out uh, cardiac chest pain. Mm. When you move on to your examination, what kinds of things are you looking for there specifically? Well, I've already mentioned end of the bed of the gram. Um, your feeling is, is this a sick patient or not? Uh, then you want to look at the vital signs of the patient. and 
looking at things like tachycardia or even bradycardia, um, blood pressure. And again, it's a relative thing. Has the blood pressure gone up or has it gone down compared to previous blood pressure recordings and oxygen status? And then you look at the patient in particular. Um, from a cardiac point of view, I want to assess their fluid status, so elevated JVP, auscultation to look for um, crackles, particularly in the lower chest zones, and whether or not that clears with coughing, basal dullness to percussion. When I'm auscultating the heart, I'm going to look for murmurs because if this is um, someone who's got a valvular problem, then I'd expect there to be a murmur. If this is a, an acute dissection, then they might have an aortic regurgitant murmur that they didn't have when they were admitted, or if they've, they've had a heart attack two days ago on their late presentation and they've suddenly become very unwell, then we might be concerned about there being a, a ventricular um, septal um, rupture, and then you'd suddenly have a murmur that wasn't noted on admission. So again, it's looking for changes um, when you're listen, listening to the heart. And also it's quite useful just to do a quick overview of non-cardiac and non-serious causes for chest discomfort. So looking for chest wall tenderness, shoulder tenderness, epigastric tenderness, um, liver tenderness, because obviously there are lots of non-cardiac causes for their chest, their chest discomfort. How does reproducibility on palpation influence your thinking? Definitely if it's very clear that I'm reproducing these symptoms by pushing on their chest wall and they've got no other associated cardiac symptoms such as diaphoresis and clinically they have no other concerning features on examination and they don't have any other cardiovascular risk factors, then I'm actually going to be quite comfortable that this is most likely a musculoskeletal problem and um, treat with simple analgesia and use a watch and wait sort of strategy. Again, finishing off my plan with uh, giving the nursing staff some guidance as to if this changes, please call me back. Yeah. So if your history and your risk assessment is low, then you might call this musculoskeletal yes. or reproducible. I'm not going to jump but on it straight away. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to use that as a way to rule out no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, cardiac chest pain. Mm. Awesome. Often for a chest pain call, you'd get an ECG. What kind of tips would you give for a chest pain um, ECG? Are there any important features that you think are missed commonly? So... The first thing is, is that um, you actually have to take the time to look at the ECG properly. So easily, especially when we're busy on a ward um, run in the evening, an ECG is like, oh, it's given to you. The nurse said, oh, this patient had chest pain an hour ago. It's all gone now. Can you just sign this ECG? And then you quickly glance. It looks okay. Sign it and give it away. And actually, you could have missed something important. So do take the time to work through your own strategy for looking at an ECG the rate, the rhythm, the different components. The second thing you need to do is get an old ECG, and that's usually going to be the admission ECG. Um, if not, then ask for clinical notes or look online to look at previous ECGs. And more often than not, these patients will have an old ECG for you to compare with. And then, uh, as I said, you're going to use your strategy for looking at the ECG rate Again, making sure they're not inappropriately fast or inappropriately slow. Rhythm, if this patient's in sinus rhythm, or if this patient's got missed heartbeats or extra heartbeats, if they're irregular, is that different from normal? And then looking at the segments. And with a 
an SD elevation MI, of course we're going to be interested in the SD segments and whether or not there's elevation. Um, and so the criteria for an SD elevation MI is at least two contiguous leads. Contiguous means that you have to think about the region that those leads cover. So for example, leads two, three, and AVF, those are contiguous leads that represent the inferior part of the heart or the right coronary artery, for example. So I'd be looking for more than one um, square SD elevation, at least two of those leads, to support my diagnosis of an SD elevation MI. It's a little bit more difficult um, when you're looking at the anterior leads because often, especially men, often have what we call a high J point. So their SD segment already starts off high. And so um, we want to see at least two squares of SD elevation above what that patient had at baseline for it to be considered um, to meet the criteria for SD elevation MI. The other things are looking at reciprocation. Um, so I've talked about contiguously, so that's suggesting that there's a regional area affected. So I guess I should mention that when you're looking at SD elevation, does the region fit? Because you might have random SD elevation that could be across multiple areas which don't fit with the coronary artery distribution. And that should be starting to make you think about things like pericarditis, myopericarditis, and also takotsubo cardiomyopathy or apical ballooning. They can often give the same kind of SD appearances but not in a regional fashion. And then we can start to think about SD depression and the SD depression does come fit into the diagnosis for a non-SD elevation MI. But um, I guess one thing to do is, again, make sure that that SD depression wasn't there on previous ECGs and also think about whether or not, again, it's regional because if it's regional, you have to think about whether or not this is actually reciprocation and what I'm referring to as a posterior MI. So if you have ST depression just in the anterior leads, so V1, V2, V3, and all the other leads look normal, and this patient in front of you looks like they're having cardiac chest pain, you've got to ask for a posterior ECG to look at whether or not there's ST elevation, because you might be missing that posterior MI. Likewise, if you've got some ST changes in the inferior leads, that 2, 3, AVF, always ask the nurse to do a, a right-sided um, ECG to see whether or not they're actually having an infra-posterior STEMI that's been missed as well. So those are two things that are easily missed on ECGs. I think also things to look out for are changes in duration, so um, PR interval prolonging. Um, could this patient have acute rheumatic heart disease perhaps? Or is this patient going from narrow QRS to a broad QRS? Um, we're looking at some sort of conduction disease, some people with um, complications from endocarditis or other heart diseases, infections, can affect the conduction in the heart and so that things get slower and slower and slower to get from the top of the heart to the bottom of the heart and that wasn't seen on an admission ECG and that can raise your concern as well. Yeah, I think what you've said about uh, thinking about the region is mm -hmm. really useful. It's great, of course, when you do get a completely normal ECG, yeah. ECG and you can confidently say that's the case. Mm. I think frequently you'll see maybe one lead with an abnormality, mm. like uh, often a T-wave change, uh, but it'll just be sitting there by itself. So would you say in general an isolated abnormality is less concerning? 
but definitely an isolated single lead um, and certainly if it's in lead th three that's actually a normal variant and um, likewise in um, lead AVR and lead one you can have an isolated T-wave inversion and that's considered to be normal but um, for peace of mind, actually, what's a really good thing to do is to ask the nurse to repeat the ECG in 15 minutes' time and look to see if there's been any what we call dynamic changes because that's also really important for ischemic chest pain. If there's dynamic changes, then that's really going to raise your level of concern. Yeah. And then you've got something objective that's going to help exactly. you when you pull up the med reg and say, I've yeah. got dynamic changes, and you're yeah. going to get them get more attention from yeah. them. And also... Um, if you see that there's one thing that's inverted in terms of, for example, a T-wave inversion, but then you also look at the QRSs and you go, hang on a minute, these QRSs, they were peaky positive on this side and they're peaky negative on this ECG. Just make sure that the nurse put the leads on the right way because more often than not, actually, the leads have got mixed around. Do you think that there's a role for like, risk stratification algorithms like the Timmy score or the heart score on the wards to help make decisions about chest pain water pools? Um, the Timmy score and the heart score are really good for risk stratification for a patient who presents to ED. And they're presenting with chest pain and what those risk scores are doing are predicting what the chances are of having a major cardiac event in the next, say, 28 days. So someone who's very low score, safe to let them go home. Someone who's intermediate, you need to do something else to make sure that they're not going to have a heart attack in the next month. Someone who's high fine, they need to be admitted and worked up. I don't think that they replace common sense on when you're seeing a patient individually. Um, but, however, the risk factors that are incorporated into those scores are useful. So the patients who do have cardiovascular risk factors, those patients who are already on aspirin, those patients who are having the longer chest pain, those are all things that are built into those scores and they should raise your level of concern for this being a serious cardiac explanation for chest pain. Yeah, so a bit like the Wells score, they're validated for use in the ED, and therefore they're not actually validated for use in a hospital where your patients are going to be already at a slightly elevated I, risk. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they can be useful in your thinking, but you shouldn't rely on a tool yeah, like that to make exactly. The fact that they've already presented with chest pain and they're in hospital means that they're a higher risk than someone who's left ED for having cardiac chest pain. And so you do have to take it seriously. Yeah. And likewise, if, for somebody who hasn't come in with chest pain, but they've had, a, had an operation or, something, or they're exactly. acutely unwell and they're old and frail, then of course they're going to be at increased risk. Exactly. So moving on to investigations, I suppose it's about making that decision. You might get a lot of chest pain ward calls and you have mm. to decide who am I going to actually prick and take some blood and think about troponins and, and yeah, that. exactly. What are, how should a house officer make those decisions? I think it's natural for everybody um, to start off by over-investigating and as they become a little bit more certain with their interpretation of patients' symptoms and clinical presentation to better rationalise their investigations. I think, especially if this is a new pain and you do have an increased level of concern for the patient, I think it is appropriate to do routine tests that rule out the common causes. So you're looking for raised inflammatory markers, um, so raised white cells if they've gotten a brewing infection, you can also look for a drop in hemoglobin, so a full blood count I think is really appropriate. 
if you do have a concern this cardiac chest pain or they've got enough risk factors that you want to reassure yourself that it isn't an acute myocardial infarct, then a troponin is appropriate. Um, certainly, I would also at that point do a creatinine and a potassium. Um, a creatinine because if they've actually developed acute kidney injury, then that might explain why they subsequently have an elevated troponin. And also hyperkalemia and hypokalemia also can affect the presentations of the ECG and increase the risk of a patient having an arrhythmia. Um, if you're going to do a troponin, you need to go make sure that you follow the guidelines for ruling in or ruling out a myocardial infarct, and that means you need two blood tests. Now, you can be a little bit sensible about this. So if someone's had chest pain, an hour ago or they've been having ongoing chest pain then you want to think about when they didn't have chest pain so for example if someone had chest pain in the afternoon but they had bloods that morning you can actually go back and add a troponin to the baseline and that becomes your baseline and then you can do a troponin um, at the time that you see the patient you need two troponins to fill the criteria because the criteria for acute myocardial infarction is if the troponin level is low, you need to have more than a 50% change. If the troponin level is high, when, you, when the patient's had symptoms, then you need a 20% change to fill the criteria for a myocardial infarct plus something else. We can talk about plus something else a bit later. But um, if, you've, if you've had a patient with some symptoms and you do the first troponin, and it's elevated, you're like, well, there's lots of reasons for the Maybe they're in heart failure, and that's the reason why they've come into hospital. Um, so then that's a good time to go back and add a troponin to the blood test earlier in the day. If you had renal impairment, to add the blood test earlier in the day just to see whether or not this is a stable troponitis or if this is a trend going up. And then what you want to do is you want to have a, a troponin after the, the symptoms have settled. In ED here at Auckland City Hospital, high sensitivity troponin T, and ED is happy to do a troponin at two hours after the event. Um, cardiology, we are more comfortable with three hours, or that second troponin being around six hours after the event. So there's a little bit of flexibility in terms of when you want to do that second blood test. If you're really concerned, do it at three hours. If you're not really concerned, you could do it a little bit later. Um, or if you think that it's if it's the second test is coming in the middle of the night and the, the your threshold for this being real chest pain is very low, then you might consider just adding it to an early morning blood and test instead. So you're just you're keeping in mind that it takes a few hours before uh, you're going to see a troponin rise yes. even in an infarct and where it might uh, say be 50 or 100 um, yeah. and that might actually be the chronic state you're saying that you can find a baseline with a yeah. previous admission yeah. well with a blood test yeah, you can taken already you can, if this is someone who constantly come in, comes in with chest pain or other things that but they've got risk factors so they frequently have troponin tests then you can go back and look at their previous troponin blood tests to see if the troponin is stable or not but um, if you don't have that, then um, adding a troponin to the blood test prior to the symptoms, especially if you if they've come in with sepsis or acute kidney injury, and that could which could elevate the troponin level um, 
then you can add it to that pre-chest pain blood test just to see what the baseline for that patient is. Is there a troponin level in your head that is kind of, this is definitely an acute infarct like compared with a troponin leak? It's variable. Um, if a troponin is elevated, it suggests that there's been myocardial necrosis. The heart has been under some strain for whatever reason. It's the high troponins or the significant troponin changes in the clinical context that makes me more worried about this being acute myocardial infarction. And so that's with the universal diagnosis or definition of an acute myocardial infarct. You have to have that significant troponin change between two serial troponins plus something else. And that something else is ischemic sound and chest pain, um, ischemic changes on the ECG. So you need at least two things to meet that, to actually fit the diagnosis of a myocardial infarct. Just having positive troponins um, is not enough. But you would hopefully wouldn't be doing them unless you had some of that other information. Yeah, exactly. When would you order a portable chest x-ray? I think a portable x-ray is really helpful for patients, again, if there's been a change in status, and usually that's change in work of breathing or change in oxygenation level, especially if you think the patient is clinically fluid overloaded but there's been no documentation. Uh, so if someone is in acute respiratory distress, absolutely um, a portable chest x-ray is appropriate. And if you are wor worried to the extent that, um, that extent, then actually an arterial blood gas is very helpful as well. And that's something that you can get rolling um, and have available for when help arrives. Okay. Once you've made the diagnosis, you're, you're concerned this is acute cardiac chest pain. Uh, obviously, you're going to call for help, but what are the first things you're going to help do okay. while help is on this way? So the first thing is to make sure the patient's stable. Having a fast heart rate, as long as it's not too fast, is appropriate. Making sure that um, the blood pressure isn't too high or too low, especially if the blood pressure is low. As long as the patient's not in overt heart failure, then you can give them a small bolus of fluid. It's interesting um, about oxygenation levels. Um, we used to always give oxygenation to people with chest pain, but nowadays we don't actually give oxygen to people unless they are hypoxic, so less than 90% on room air, and even lower if this patient has got known um, respiratory disease and their baseline is 90. Then. The next thing is, once, once you're happy that they're stable, is to alleviate their pain. So um, GTN spray. And if you haven't tried GTN spray yourself, I really encourage you to try it <laughs> while sitting down so that you, A, know how awful it is to spray in the mouth because it's really strong, and B, what a head rush it can give you because it does drop your blood pressure dramatically. So if your patient isn't already um, lying down, I'd make sure the patient's lying down before you give it. Um, and also um, an opiate. Opiates are good for pain relief, but also improving um, or reducing, I should say, cardiac work. Morphine is the ideal agent, and the nurse can give the patient sort of one milligram, two milligram boluses as per their protocol. Or if uh, you're concerned about poor renal impairment, so an EGFR less than 30, or an elderly patient. And, I mean, even an elderly patient with good renal function, I'd still be happy to give morphine to. 
but an elderly patient with borderline renal function, I'd probably want to give them some fentanyl. And then, again, it's as per protocol, sort of 10 mic um, boluses as needed. And I guess the last thing is, is um, if you haven't already done it, um, then you should be doing some serial ECGs and have you should have this patient hooked up to a monitor, whether it's an ECG machine, if that's all you've got, or the cardiac defibrillator on the recess trolley, just so that you can be monitoring their rhythm, because a very common cause of people becoming unwell from an acute myocardial infarct is actually electrical instability, so arrhythmias. What about antiplatelets? Hopefully in uh, that sort of beginning phase, when you've looked at their background history, you would have already identified whether or not this patient is already on some form of um, antiplatelet anticoagulation. Are they on aspirin already for primary risk factor prevention? Are they on dabigatran because of AF or are they on warfarin because of heart valves or they've been treated for um, VTE? And you also want to have a sense of their bleeding risk. So if this is someone who's had recent surgery, especially abdominal or cranial or, or joint surgery, um, or they've had a recent history of GI bleeds, um, then you're going to be a lot more cautious about starting those agents. And I definitely think it would be appropriate to wait for someone more senior to make the decision. But if this is a straightforward patient who doesn't have bleeding risks and you've, you've made a diagnosis of acute myocardial infarct, then the three agents that you're going to do, or at least the very first agent, is you're going to make, load the patient with aspirin. So 300 milligrams of aspirin. In fact, that might be all you have time to do before help arrives. Um, the other two things is the second antiplatelet agent. And again, it's a loading dose. So ticagrelor is the, uh, the second antiplatelet of choice, which is 180 milligrams loading. Uh, or clopidogrel, um, which is 600 milligrams loading. And if you have some doubt in your mind as to whether or not decagrel or clopidogrel is the right agent, then you should wait for your senior colleague to come. And then the third agent is your subcutaneous clexane and oxyparin. And um, if this is a otherwise well patient with no renal impairment, then the dosing is one mg per kg twice daily. If the patient has renal impairment, then it's one mg per kg once daily. And now we actually take into account patient's age. So over the age of, say, 80 or 85 years, we're actually going to use 0.7 mg per kg twice daily. Right, so you're saying you don't need to rush in to no. the, the aspirin, but if you are... Well, if I, I, think I, would, I think aspirin is the number one thing to load. Um, I don't think you need to rush into your second antiplatelet agent or the clexane. Yep. Yeah. If you've uh, if you've got any doubts about which second um, antiplatelet agent to use, then you what, should hold off. Help then, yeah. yeah. But then keep in, make but, sure that they do get them if appropriate. Exactly. Yeah, so have um, them in your mind. And also make sure that your patient isn't on dabigatran or warfarin because the last thing you want is to have someone who's on warfarin because they've something non-cardiac related, such as being treatment for a pulmonary embolus or a, a DVT, and then you give them dual antiplatelet therapy plus clexane, and the next day they've got homoptosis, and that's a true story. Mm -hmm. So you want to avoid that. 
Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Adele Pope, uh, expert on chest pain. <laughs> You're welcome. To recap the approach, first, eyeball the patient and do your ABCs. Call the code if necessary. 777 or your local hospital number. This is Sam, medical house officer. I need the adult resus team to attend North Shore Hospital, Ward 10, Room E3. Take your history. Use the Socrates mnemonic or something else to define the site, onset, character, radiation, associated symptoms, timing, exacerbating factors, severity, etc. Did they have previous similar episodes? Do they have a history of exertional chest pain? Was there diaphoresis, shortness of breath? Do a review of symptoms. Identify risk factors from the patient and from the notes. Check the vitals and do an examination. The endobetogram is key because you need to know if this is a sick patient or not. Aim to identify key factors like hypotension, reproducibility of the pain on palpation, and respiratory issues. Don't forget to check the abdomen, calves, catheter, and drains for completeness. Get an ECG. Take your time with the ECG and be systematic, and remember to compare with an old ECG. Consider investigations like full blood count, use and ease, and a troponin. Get a chest x-ray if you think there could be an acute pulmonary component to the pain. If you think this could be a life-threatening diagnosis, call for help early. For myocardial infarction, attach continuous monitoring and reassess the stability of the patient. Give oxygen only if hypoxic and give GTN spray to help with pain and also to help with reperfusion of the heart. Give opiate analgesia, ideally IV morphine to begin with, and then determine bleeding risk and start thinking about antiplatelet therapy. If you decide to give an antiplatelet, start with a loading dose of aspirin, 300 milligrams. Always remember to document, review the past notes, get your basics down, date, time, name, reason for review, include your positives and pertinent negatives, list your impression and differential. Make sure you've eliminated life-threatening conditions, and if you're going to call it anxiety or musculoskeletal pain, be sure you've ticked every box. Consider looking at the Timmy or heart score to identify any risk factors you might have missed in your history, and write a clear and specific plan. Always consider discussion with a senior and escalation, especially if called back to see the patient again. Thanks to the NZRDA Education Trust for making the show possible. And remember, while we've done our best to bring you accurate, reliable advice, our advice does not replace your local hospital policy or guidelines, nor good clinical judgment. Music